You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives and the director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments. Joining me on the podcast today is Andrei Sushensov. He is the dean at the School of International Relations at the Moscow State Institute of International Relations, better known to most as Megimo. Uh, I would also count Andre as a friend. I hope he would say the same of me. Um, I have wanted to have Andre on the podcast for a couple weeks now for obvious reasons. Um, I've wanted to get a perspective from Moscow about the war in Ukraine, and Andre was good enough to come on the podcast and give us some of his time and his insights. Um, a disclaimer to head off any hate mail or any harsh feelings from some of the listener base, much of which is based in the West. Remember that the goal of this podcast is not necessarily for me to bring on guests that I agree with. In some ways, those are the most boring episodes. I am always looking for smart people who have different perspectives and different ideas. Um, Andre and I disagree on a number of things when it comes to Ukraine. I did not use this podcast as a forum for me telling him all the ways that I disagreed with him. My goal was really to bring out Andre's perspective and let that speak for itself. And I trust you as listeners to make up your own minds about what's going on in Ukraine, about how Russia is feeling about it. I should also say I'm not objective, I don't think, about the war in Ukraine. I don't think any person could be, but in some sense that makes me even more guarded about the way that I phrased some of these questions and the way that I present things publicly, because I'm here to offer analysis, insight into what is going on. If you want my opinion, find me and buy me a bottle of wine and a pizza and I will sit down and tell all. That's about all my opinions are really worth. But again, the goal of this podcast is to bring out different perspectives, even ones that we disagree with. And even though I disagree with Andre on number of things. I think Andre is an incredibly bright, incredibly empathetic, uh, and incredibly intelligent person. And I was really appreciative of him willing to come on this podcast, knowing that he and I probably have such divergent um, points of view. So thank you to Andre for making the time. Thank you in advance, listeners. I consider myself very lucky to have a listener base that is primarily concerned with getting access to information and perspective and is not looking for me to tell them exactly what I think or what they should think about anything. So I hope that this episode adds to your knowledge and gives you some interesting data points that you hadn't thought about before. And as always, reach out, be in touch. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, um, or ideas that you want to share with me, I'm always happy to listen to your ideas as well. So cheers, take good care of each other. I will see you out there. That, that is how I would call it. <laughs> yeah. um, Andre, it's really nice to have you back on the podcast. Uh, the audience can't see you, but I can see you. It's good to see you. Thank you for being here. Jacob, for, thank you for this. Um, I thought I'd start off with a little bit of irony and humor. Um, you know, The last time you were on this podcast was roughly a year ago, and you and I were talking about how climate change might be the thing that brought the US and Russia together to work together on the global scale rather than oppose each other. Uh, <laughs> and we were pretty wrong. So I wanted to start with why were we so wrong about that? If you remember, we were very desperate uh, in our conversation trying to find any common ground to um, cooperation of the United States and Russia. and. Um, those areas even one year ago were quite limited uh, even though we have uh, a lot of uh, you know joint interest in in preventing the uh, spread of uh, weapons of mass destruction um, and uh, some other areas like arctic food security 
energy issues, uh, space, etc. But uh, I think that we were in a situation that uh, bilateral relations have just stabilized after Biden took office and there have been several escapades uh, between the United States and Russia, Biden calling President Putin a killer or something like this, um, new wave of sanctions, uh, you know, the, the, the fallout from the Trump presidency, Congress is very, you know, angry and irritated and um, a very, very ambivalent summit in, in Switzerland between two presidents without any significant breakthroughs. So um, I think that uh, our desperation led us to, to, and our optimism, historical optimism, <laughs> led us to, to uh, finding some common ground that can actually work. I believe that we will still have some common ground even after this crisis. You know, every war ends and uh, new uh, security regimes, new structures emerge after the war. But uh, it's not clear when exactly we can come back to the uh, environment issues because we will have a lot on our table security-wise. Yeah, and it, and it feels like a lot of the things you talked about, whether it's food security or climate change or energy security, it, it feels like all space, it feels like all these things are going to get worse now before they can get better. I also wanted to ask you, from an analytical perspective, I didn't think Russia was going to invade. I was one of these experts in the West who was saying, no, like they've done military exercises like this before. They're trying to make a political point. They want us to know they're really unhappy about Ukraine and the way that the Biden administration is talking about Russia. Um, I wanted to ask you as, as a colleague and as a sort of fellow traveler in, in, this, in, in this analytical world, what did I miss? Uh, were there signs that Russia was telegraphing that would have told me that this was a different set of military exercises? Was the goal for Russia to actually obscure its true intentions so it had an element of surprise in Ukraine? How how should I think going forward of the analytical mistake I, I made in misjudging Russia's intentions for this particular conflict? I think I made the same mistake, actually. I, I was not expecting the war to to occur in late February this year, even though I had a, a sense that uh, this crisis in some way, a postponed crisis. Um, the trends in European security, trends in uh, Russian-Ukrainian relations, the relations between United States and Ukraine, Great Britain and Ukraine, um, they pointed out towards the military solution open question was who would strike first currently people describe this crisis as you know small small and small and vulnerable ukraine is a victim of big and uh, you know juggernaut russia um, but military wise ukraine is pretty significant actor uh, its armed forces 220 to 140,000 people large territory a very significant Soviet uh, military inheritance, uh, almost uh, uh, 2,500 tanks and artillery systems. It's uh, kind of a you know significant thing. And uh, with military support from United States and, and Great Britain with intentions of creating military bases, um, very open stated, openly stated intentions to create its own sophisticated rocket program. And uh, as Zelensky uh, have uh, 
described in, in Munich Security Conference um, this year. Ukraine would like to develop its own nuclear capabilities if internal, if external security guarantees would not work. And uh, in this respect, Ukraine for Russia is a kind of a, you know, I, I would use this imperfect metaphor, India-Pakistani relations. Both countries have simultaneously uh, were given life after the collapse of the British Empire. And for Pakistan, it's, uh, it, this collapse of the empire was a very formative experience in opposing India. Uh, identity of Pakistan have um, translated into anti-India stances. Its uh, military forces have started to play a very significant role in the social life, uh, inter, in, inter services intelligence. Uh, service started to be a very important um, player in political processes. And they simultaneously with India developed nuclear weapons. And uh, Pakistan is an important counterbalancer to India in, in South Asia. Pakistan started to develop its own uh, uh, foreign strategy based on the assumption that it needs to contain India and started to develop relations with, with China. And in this respect, I think that the United States and uh, some other European powers are were eager to support Ukraine, who would like to be that, you know, counterweight to Russia. And uh, Ukraine is not Estonia. Estonia is a small country of 1 million people. It's a significant 44, 42 million people country and uh, with significant military forces and uh, very open intention to take Donbass and Crimea back. Uh, some in the elite believe that by military means, some state that uh, we will do more political work. But this constant shelling of Donbass and the death of people throughout this old eight years of war, it was clear that uh, neither Poroshenko nor Zelensky were actually seeing this as uh, an open-ended conflict. They wanted to finish it on some terms. And um, the question for me was, uh, who will strike first and uh, on what terms? That was the question that I had a wrong, wrong answer. But what we are observing after this strike, basically the same scenario that would be if, if Ukraine would strike first in Donbas. Sanctions, support, military support, Western military support, intelligence, uh, satellite imaginary, um, economic warfare, basically. And uh, I think it's now much bigger than, than Ukraine. It's Russia West, it's a global um, economy, global trade thing, um, supply chains, um, reserve currency issues, and uh, all things connected to the global pillars of the world order. So, to some extent, this crisis is a postponed crisis that uh, was uh, almost inevitable if we consider the Western strategy after the end of the Cold War. Um, yeah, the uh, the Pakistan India comparison is very interesting to me. It's it's interesting for a couple of reasons. Of course, Pakistan has lost every single war it's fought with India. So if that's the metaphor, probably shouldn't be so afraid of Pakistan. Has also never used its nuclear weapons. Um, but the the other thing I wanted to to ask you is, I mean, in a certain sense, you know, the idea of Pakistan and India didn't exist before independence and partition, and they grafted religion onto that conflict. But before. Indian independence, it was really one state. In a certain sense, 
the independence of India resulted in a series of civil wars inside India and Pakistan is one result, Bangladesh is another result. When you're looking at this conflict as a, as a Russian, does this feel like a war against an external actor? Does this feel like a civil war? Does it feel like both at the same time? I'm, I'm just trying to get a, a sense of what the, what the perspective is from Moscow, of what Ukraine is, whether it is part of Russia and, and the, the perception is that it's been hijacked by external actors or whether this feels like a more internal personal conflict on some level. It is actually both. And uh, I can state that uh, Russia, it is actually both. And I can state that uh, Russia-Ukrainian uh, conflicts are quite numerous in history. If you take great uh, literature, Nikolai Gogol describing in uh, his uh, great novel Taras Bulba, specifically this uh, Russia-Ukrainian-Polish confrontation, where his uh, main character, Taras Bulba, uh, father of two sons, one of them has taken side of basically Ukrainians and Russians, and the other has taken side of Poland, and father kills this one. Mm. He kills his son, basically, and that is a very dramatic uh, family story uh, that Nikolai Gogol has coined in the 19th century. Then Alexander Pushkin describing uh, Peter I and uh, Mazepa during the Swedish invasion in Russian Empire, where Mazepa, uh, one of the Ukrainian Cossack leaders, has joined Swedes and failed to deliver victory for his uh, men. And basically, we, we can see that uh, this type of interaction is a historically uh, proven tendency. Uh, and it is both, you know, external and internal conflict. It is a civil war in, in many senses. First generation of post-Soviet leaders have uh, congratulated themselves that they had actually avoided a major civil war in Soviet Union after the collapse, unlike in Yugoslavia, where the interethnic conflicts were very um, significant with uh, a lot of lives lost. Um, but we eventually didn't manage to avoid this civil war. Every second, every third family here in Russia and in Ukraine is split. We have relatives on different parts of the border. And uh, of course, it is this kind of conflict that touches very deeply every, every family. Um, I cannot uh, you know, analyze it uh, that neutrally uh, comparatively to how I can analyze Russia-Western relations. Mm. Um, it is not the language that, that I can use to, to describe this, this type of uh, interaction. And uh, yes, the Soviet Union collapse, uh, the unresolved issues that, that this collapse has, uh, uh, has left, they are currently a uh, bifurcation point. They are basically exploding as, as volcanoes. And uh, Russia-Western confrontation in, in Europe is a, a layer above this Russia-Ukrainian issue. Uh, as uh, Alexander Pushkin said in one of his verses, it's our internal inter-Slavic uh, intercourse and, and uh, the West should stay uh, away from this <laughs> family, family type of interaction. But, uh, you know, it's, it's very ugly still. Yeah, um, I can see you've been reading a lot of Pushkin, which is one of the reasons I like talking to you. Um, one, one other question I had was... Um, 
because I, I understand a lot of what Russia's national security imperatives are in Ukraine and why it's important for Russia and the threats that Russia felt. Um, but what I don't understand is the timing, because from where I was sitting, Russia was basically getting everything that it wanted politically. It was getting NATO fracturing. The European Union was squabbling with itself. Yes, the US was saying a bunch of things, but it wasn't doing anything. It wasn't going to let Ukraine into NATO or anything like that, no matter what anyone said. And I think everybody kind of knew that behind the scenes. Um, so I'm wondering from your perspective why the timing is now on this Ukraine war. I've seen a lot of speculation in the West. You know, Some are speculating, hey, energy prices are high, so Russia feels like it can do things that it couldn't afford to do before. They've been you know, protecting their economy for a couple of years to try this. I've seen the narrative that Russia thought Biden was a weak one-term president. Um, I've seen this this new narrative in just the last week or two in the West is, oh, it's really all about reclaiming Ukraine's resources, and that's really what Russia is after. Um, how, how do you think through the timing of this, and why do you think Moscow decided to do this now rather than a year from now or two years previous? I don't think I will have a certain answer to this, but um, the difference in policy planning here in Moscow and in the West is that Western politics is very much focused on the political cycles and uh, people generally strategize only two to four years and they do not consider the long terms that are um, emerging throughout you know, decades. Uh, and uh, this strategizing is replaced by the you know notion, ideological notion that there is a good side of history and bad side of history. And since we are on the you know proper side of history, history just develops in a way that that benefits us uh, towards you know freedom, liberalism, democracy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, I think it is a, a dangerous replacement of uh, true strategy uh, against this idea thing. The issue of Ukraine is that um, it is not Estonia. It's a very significant gravity center security-wise, and it has significant intentions toward reclaiming what it considers its own, like Donbass. For Russia, it's an internal political issue. It is an issue of Ru Russians abroad. In what country Russia can permit itself Russians to be killed? Nowhere, basically. And only in Ukraine, government uh, very forcefully um, disciplines and, and structures sentiment that is uh, a, like pro-Ukrainian, but on the premise that uh, we would Ukrainianize Russians and those Russians who do not like to be Ukrainianized should either go away, Zelensky quite openly said this, should, should go to Russia, or they will be prosecuted. And uh, I have a lot of you know, connections and friends who are currently in, in very dire circumstances in, in, in either Kiev or some other different centers. Uh, th their, their issue is not that Russia would win, but Russia would lose. And that is very uh, the part of story that that is not very evident in in, in Western media. I don't see it that much, uh, and they do not speak openly in in social media. Some of them in uh, political circles, in academia circles, are silenced, uh, and some of them have physically disappeared. Mikhail Pogrebinsky, one of the leading uh, Ukrainian experts uh, in opposition towards. Uh, Ukrainian government has uh, recently been uh, taken by police and in, in, in 
in his flats, there was a searches by security forces. So this internal split inside Ukraine is uh, making this first a civil war, not only for Russia, but for Ukraine also. And um, you cannot separate two communities, you know, Russian identity people and Ukrainian identity people, two political communities, basically. It's not ethnic community. Some of the ethnic Ukrainians, they understand themselves as Russians, identically, like politically affiliated and, and vice versa. Um, and uh, I, I can describe Ukrainian politics very briefly for this 32. Uh, I can describe Ukrainian politics very briefly with a metaphor uh, of uh, clash of two views of Ukrainian national identity. One is a Galician consensus. Uh, Galicia is a western part of Ukraine where people basically um, developing a story of a nation that was in a position to Russia for about centuries and had been fighting both Russian Empire, then Soviet Union, and then current Russian. Uh, that uh, Ukrainian language and Ukrainian identity should be the sole uh, pillar of the Ukrainian statehood. Uh, heroes of that Ukraine are those who fought with Russia, including those who have fought inside German fascist forces throughout the Great Patriotic War. And uh, this identity, they tried to um, propel throughout all of the country. And the second pillar is Eastern consensus or Donbass consensus is that uh, significant uh, a fundamental pillar of Ukrainian statehood are people of Russian identity. And they have absolutely opposite pantheon of heroes, uh, very different history, and uh, would like to maintain very close connections to Russia. And throughout several decades, this, this clash of two, two perspectives, two views, eventually resulted in the domination of this Western consensus. And people who affiliated themselves with Russia, they started to feel very, very, uh, very, very um, insecure and eventually marginalized. Um, it is when I read uh, Western mainstream media and, and when I give my interviews to, to some of them, it, it's really interesting how people choose, choose uh, their heroes, how they prefer sides, how they decide like, to observe things with one eye open and, and, and the second closed. Um, they uh, speak to people who would like to share their story with them. And usually it is a story of a heroic, you know, Western Ukrainian nation that is battling with Russia. And, and this type of story works really well in the West. And almost every my, of my interviews, uh, when I describe uh, Russia-Ukrainian relations, I um, describe the, the horrendous events in Odessa in, in May 2014, where a group of pro-Russian Protesters have been burned alive uh, in the house of the trade unions. More than 40 people have been burned. There was uh, uh, like a month uh, from the Crimea events. And uh, this, this tragedy was a very formative event, not only for Ukrainian politics, but for Russian politics also. And in none of my interviews that have been published in, in some uh, really you know, significant uh, Western outlets, this episode stayed people, uh, editors or journalists decided to take it out, even though they were really informed about like, what, what happened and, uh, and uh, how, how exactly, how violent and, and how vile this, this was. But they, they preferred to 
to have it. So the short answer to this is uh, that um, the growing significance of the Ukrainian, uh, you know, endeavor of taking back Donbas and Crimea and forming this, uh, you know, uniform identity for Ukraine started to present a real danger for Russia, a real threat for Russia. Uh, it's not clear where this, uh, you know, threat, where inside Russia, uh, Ukrainian ambitions would uh, would cease. Some of uh, their political leaders said, you know what, we need to have a military parade in Moscow on the Red Square, uh, like uh, their in interior minister, their, their ministry of, of uh, uh, defense and some other figures. So uh, it, it's, I don't have a clear answer why exactly now, but it was clear that uh, they were on the collision course for some time from now. And uh, maybe the real question was who would strike first? Hmm. Well, first of all, we won't be deleting anything out of this podcast, so we'll get that in. I, I should say that, you know, the more this conflict goes on, the, the more we're seeing lots of different atrocities and horrible things, which is why war is terrible and why analysts like you and me grope around for optimistic readings of geopolitics and not for what we have in front of us. Um, you did. There is something I wanted to push on a little bit more there, though, which is um, you talked about how, from Russia's perspective, that you know there are Russian speakers in Ukraine, and they were they were in jeopardy, or they were reaching out to help from Russia. There are other countries in Eastern Europe that have Russian speakers who could make arguments that they are disenfranchised or threatened. And you know, you already mentioned Estonia as a small country, but. You know, that doesn't pose a threat to Russia, but you could make that argument for some of the Baltics. You can make that argument for Moldova. You can maybe make that argument for even other countries after this war as anti-Russian sentiment kind of grows stronger. So where does the line stop? Does it stop at the Carpathians with Ukraine? Are there other countries? And maybe it's not even in Eastern Europe. Do we need to think about uh, the Balkans and what's happening with Serbia and Kosovo? Do we need to go to the South Caucasus? Do we need to go to Central Asia? Are there other areas that are going to trigger this for Russia and, and what's going to stop Russia from kind of pushing forward along that line in a lot of different other countries? Um, for, three gen for, for three decades, Russia was uh, very restrained in reacting to any of uh, those instances, even though indeed in Baltic states and in some other countries, uh, Russian speakers, people of Russian identity were oppressed and uh, were not given, you know, political rights in some of those countries. Uh, they were even not given citizenship, even though they were born in those countries. But uh, the difference between them and Ukraine is that Ukraine strategically, militarily is very significant actor and was and had very active intention for military confrontation with Russia to retake Donbass. Uh, Ukraine solely had uh, a military potential that can threaten Russia. N n neither. Um, Estonian or Lithuanian or anybody else has it. And uh, even though Ukraine was not in NATO, separately from NATO, Ukraine was quite significant, uh, with an army only a third after Russian and Turkish in Europe, with a very significant bulk of uh, armaments, tanks, Tochka um, U uh, rockets, which are pretty effective, and uh, with significant uh, fighter plane. Um, uh, number of them and um, you know not only capability but also intentions matter L Lithuania on occasions it plays with an idea that you know we would uh, fight with Russia I remember in the middle of uh, last year there was an episode where 
Spanish warplanes were stationed in, in Lithuania to set a signal to Russia. And the uh, Spanish prime minister came visiting them. With a uh, Lithuanian president, they were giving press conference in front of the hangar with those planes. And while they were speaking, and that was widely broadcasted, both in Spain, in Lithuania, Euronews uh, also covered it, uh, a signal came that specifically in this moment, those planes should uh, take off and go you know, on a patrol mission with Russia, just in the middle of a press conference. And of course, everything was stopped. Uh, people and planes started to, you know, to crawl through, through the airfield. And that was a, this suspense feeling that, you know, now we're starting to, you know, fight Russians. Uh, it was really a, a movie-type suspense, like Avengers Part 2. <laughs> like, we, we, we will now show them off. And uh, all of those uh, provocations, I would call it like this, have stopped on the February 24th. It, it's clear that Lithuania doesn't possess a potential to actually threaten Russia. Well, Ukraine does possess. Ukraine was really feeling very good, very like militarily fit. And with the support from the United States and Great Britain, um, recently a general secretary of NATO, Stoltenberg, said that uh, three, uh, three th uh, no, no, recently general secretary of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, said that uh, 30,000 Ukrainian troops were trained by the NATO instructors. And uh, some of them, even labeled by American Congress as a neo-Nazi uh, battalions like Azov, even them were uh, receiving that, that type of uh, uh, training. So I think that uh, Ukraine is very particular in many, many uh, instances. And uh, I would not connect dots between, say, Ukraine and Estonia. Uh, before we turn to sort of the current conflict and future implications, you, you mentioned the Avengers. So I wanted to ask, um, are there Russian superhero movies or, or what, what are the movies? Cause I, I doubt that all Russians are as cultured as you and are just reading Pushkin in their spare time. So what, what are the narratives and movies that Russians are, are watching right now? Are they still consuming stuff from the West? Is there a Russian industry of these things going on? What, what do you find that people, the narratives that people are gravitating towards in Moscow? People in Moscow still consume Western uh, blockbusters and, and people like them. But uh, what is the formative experience for most of them in terms of popular culture are the movies of the Great Patriotic War. It was such a significant impact on the country. Every family lost a relative. And uh, it really, you know, takes... Uh, it connects very easily to every Russian this war with a lot of sacrifices, with a lot of heroism, with uh, fighting the fascists, with uh, actually uh, getting to victory through great sacrifices and, and great heroism. And I think this is a code, uh, national code of Russians. And, and in these circumstances, uh, the public support for presidents, uh, there is really remarkable, really. Um, it is uh, people connect dots between great patriotic wars through the movies with current events, and uh, I see a lot of enthusiasm uh, connected also to this uh, popular culture. <laughs> um, interesting. Well, so we've talked about context, we've talked about our own mistakes and and things like that. Let's um, let's talk about what's going on right now. And I really wanted to know how is the war going from Russia's perspective. 
Uh, from my point of view, it doesn't seem to be going well. It seems like there was a failure to, to reach some objectives in Kyiv. It seems like there's now a redeployment and a refocus on Donbass and some of the regions in the east that Russian military forces have had more success at. Um, is the war going well from Russia's perspective? And, and what do you think Russia's military objectives are moving forward? I think the objective that is called demilitarization uh, stays uh, very uh, high on the agenda. Demilitarization meaning dismantling the massive Ukrainian military forces and preventing Ukraine from uh, achieving the same level of uh, militarization in the future. Ukraine was really, you know, investing in uh, its uh, military. The uh, military budget comparing to GDP was around 6%. That is uh, really significant, close to Israel, actually. And uh, uh, Ukrainian forces were only one-fourth of Russian. And uh, that is uh, really significant for Russia. Um, I'm not a specialist on military strategy, but uh, even for me, it's clear that uh, Russia is not waging this war. Um, in a way, it could have you know, waged it um, if it would fight with both hands, I would put it this way. This idea that uh, Russian troops should uh, refrain from damaging excessively uh, civilian infrastructure. And actually, during the first weeks, even... Uh, should you know pre prevent uh, in inappropriate damage to military targets like the um, stations where where military servicemen sleep? Uh, we call them kazarmy. Uh, there have been no such strikes during the first several weeks throughout the war. And um, if you really call this a war, this is very specific and particular war, very like surgical type of war. And it's, uh, I, I, I find it troubling to compare it to anything else. It's not the way Russia led a war in Chechnya, where very massive uh, firepower have been applied like uh, on, on uh, significant uh, parts of Syria's. During the second Chechen campaign, if you check the, the, the photos, how Grozny looked like, it was really a flat place with no single building standing. Um, a lot of uh, Second World War type of you know, interaction. Even in Mariupol, that is devastated very greatly. Currently, it's not like this. Uh, new may mayor that has been appointed recently, he said that 60% of the infrastructure is uh, damaged, but ir irreparable only 20% of it. So uh, it, it's not Stalingrad, it's not, you know, Grozny, it's not uh, even uh, Idlib in, in Syria or anything like this. So this type of war that Russia is... Uh, Waging, it's not a, a war that U United States ha had in Iraq, say, where um, throughout uh, this short campaign, you know, several uh, tens of thousands of people, of, of, of civilian people have, have died. Russia tries to diminish this number uh, greatly. And uh, some military analysts, uh, Western actually, said that Russia is waging a war with one hand behind one thing. And second thing, uh, Russia is not using uh, military recruits mobilized, uh, just ordinary civilians who have passed through very short training. Only experienced servicemen who are fighting uh, professionally in military force, which is a new thing for Russia, actually. We have never had this type of war. It was not in Chechnya, maybe in Syria, but that was very mm. small 
in scale iteration compared to anything else. And uh, uh, I understand that uh, Russian military uh, plan in the beginning was to surround Kiev to prevent uh, uh, Ukrainian servicemen from going to the east of the country where the main battle was around Mariupol. That when this uh, goal was achieved, it was clear that Russia is not sending enough forces to actually take Kiev because it's a multi-million uh, people city, a huge megalopolis, and uh, Russian forces in the north were not exceeding like 30 or 40,000 people. Um, it, it's really small compared to the possible military objective there. So the current military aim, uh, as proclaimed, is to destroy the eastern uh, group of forces, of Ukrainian forces in the Donbass. Um, so I don't see that uh, it is a setback for Russia. Um, it's clear that uh, it would take much longer to achieve military objective if you fight with one hand, if you try to, you know, reduce the number of, of casualties of war. Uh, I would suggest that uh, achievement of this demilitarization thing would, can occur without Ukrainian consent. So we can basically dismantle major factories, uh, uh, dismantle, dismantle the anti-aircraft systems and uh, all the significant military machinery that, that Ukraine has. Uh, other issue, what would be the plan for the post-war uh, period? And um, as we know, most of the troubles that the United States had in Iraq was after the war, not during the war. And uh, that is an open question, and uh, we will see. Well, I'm, you, you just uh, lobbied up a fastball, or really a, a, a slow pitch for me to hit there, because that was going to be my next question. I mean, what, what does the post-war situation look like? Because even... Um, even if Russia is, as, as you say, fight, fighting with one hand tied behind its back, and we could agree or disagree with that, um, you know, a lot of Ukrainians are dying. There is a lot of damage to infrastructure around. Uh, it's something like, a, I believe, 4 million Ukrainians have left the country and something like 6 million are internally displaced. Uh, displaced. Um, so I wonder, I mean, what does what is what is the point of view of a Ukrainian towards Russia going forward? Has has Russia, by demilitarizing the country, also basically ensured that a generation of Ukrainians will grow up afraid of Russia and wanting to, you know, in a worst case scenario here, have a long term insurgency against Russia, or just not not be happy with kind of Russia doing what it's doing on the Ukrainian borders? Is that a concern for Moscow going forward? Do you think that Russia could be dragged down into a long protracted conflict that could sap its its resources significantly? That's a clear possibility, of course. And uh, I assume United States, Britain, Poland, maybe European Union in general would like this perspective to actually be real for Russia, for it to, to pay a very high cost by the expense of Ukrainians, actually. The, the, more, the more prolonged the conflict will be, more military support is coming from the West, the longer this crisis would, would be. And it's clear that uh, this turn of events would lead to renewed hostility between Russian and Ukrainians. It is also true that uh, in those territories that Russia is controlling, in Kherson, in Nikolaev, in Zaporozhye, in Donetsk and Lugansk, there is no significant civilian resistance currently. 
people are returning to life. I don't see this being broadcasted to in, in the general Western media, but uh, uh, local administrations have been set up by the locals with the support of Russian military commanders. And we don't see now significant insurgency. Also, I would point out that Russia had a successful experience in battling counterinsurgency in Chechnya. And you see now that it's bearing really significant fruits. To a lot of Russians, uh, there have been you know, significant questions for about two decades. So why exactly do we spend so much time, effort and money in maintaining stabili stability in Chechnya and supporting uh, uh, local leaders? And eventually, now people understand why. They are one of the very active and very you know, forceful and efficient forces throughout this crisis. I would not exclude the same scenario for those Ukrainians who would uh, join Russia throughout this crisis. It's clear that in some parts of the country, it is impossible. In Western Ukraine, there would be very prolonged uh, hatred that is renewed by this crisis. It's really clear. But if Russia's premise that part of the Ukrainian society is leaning toward Russia and would like to turn back to Russia, if this uh, premise is correct, then we will see a uh, you know, very different picture from what many people in the West are expecting. Hmm. Um, let's turn a little bit kind of the regional scale here. Um, we're recording here on April 8th. I was reading Finnish newspapers this morning about how Finland maybe wants to join NATO. Um, Europe seems to have really done a 180 on Russia. Even, you know, we're talking about Germany rearming, which sends shivers down my spine. Um, you know, lots of things happening in Europe, and it seems like the Russia-Europe relationship is fundamentally broken. Um, and it, it, it also seems like Europe is not willing to cut itself off from Russia right away. But, you know, if we believe what, what we're hearing out of places like Berlin and Paris, it's going to be a two to three year sprint to try and wean themselves off of Russian energy and then be done with it. Um, that seems to me like it's a major threat for Russia because I don't think you can build enough pipeline infrastructure to export energy to the Chinese in the amount of time it's going to take the, the Europeans to wean themselves off. So the real question I wanted to ask to you was, do you think that Europe has changed? Or do you think that this is just sort of a moment in time and that once things normalize, that things will go back to the way that they are? Or do you think Europe has fundamentally changed its position towards Russia? And if it has, isn't that going to really damage the Russian economy, not in the short term with these sanctions, but in the long term? It seems to me that Russia is facing serious economic pain in the two to five year time horizon if Europe really has done this 180. I don't think that Europe has done this 180. I think what we're observing is just the acceleration of the trend that was in place. The German pro-Russian policy was based uh, on the assumption that we should thank Russians for the re reunification of Germany. And eventually, every such uh, event is passes in history and the memory of it is fading. Other than this, uh, there are no structural premises of the, uh, you know, any political union between Russia and Germany. Uh, besides, maybe it's uh, economic, German economic interest over Russian material sources. Um, Germany and France have not delivered what they call strategic, uh, you know, independence, strategic autonomy from the United States. We see very clear that uh, transatlantic relations are still the basis of the. Um, Western solidarity. 
Uh, unlike uh, situation in, in 2003, where France and Germany have resisted American plans to, to invade Iraq, now we see that this generation of leaders is basically has basically decided that they would not oppose the United States in its intentions to, to you know, maintain its global preponderance, global dominance. I don't see any other scenario that would lead to an approximation between Russia and Europe. Some, ex uh, some exceptions from this, some exclusions from this, yeah? Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, like Hungary, Austria, on some instances. Um, they are very rare and very, you know, particular to be, uh, for us to be able to generalize from them. And uh, I think what we are having in the end is uh, the dust settles down and we see more clear what exactly is a system that exists in Europe. And it was hostile system for many years from now very many years and maybe from the munich security conference in 2007 where president putin delivered his speech it was already clear that that the system is very hostile in europe and europe independently doesn't play any significant role in this united states is still major provider of security to nato uh, turkey is a particular thing but uh, for mainland europe there is no discussion that uh, they you know uh, collectively presents a center of gravity, center of military power. And uh, thus, the United States, uh, you know, basically presents joint uh, common foreign policy strategy for everybody. And uh, thus, we have this, this crisis, this conflict. It would hurt Russia, of course. There is no doubt about this. When you have one of your two major options being eliminated, it always hurts strategy. I think it would hurt Europeans severely also, and uh, it would not hurt the United States because basically Europeans will pay to the United States for raw materials, resources, gas, and all the things, and this would again make the United States a benefactor of this uh, crisis, but, but for Germans, uh, French, Italians, uh, etc., the, the checks for the gas, for, for electricity, for you know, raw materials of all the types, what, what go up and uh, political repercussions of it would be significant also not only for russia but for europe so uh, i don't think that we will come back to uh, any kind of new norm and i don't think that we will uh, have um, you know a type of friendly cooperative relations in the future security system in europe would be very hostile and would be based again on uh, russian american counterbalances you know, counter-threats to one another. Uh, my only hope is that uh, this type of counterbalances and, and counter-threats would make people more serious about the potential for crisis that is there and would force people to talk to one another and actually get to solutions. Russia was, uh, you know, asking for being heard, for its interest to be considered for several decades from now. And uh, I hope that this crisis would, would lead to an understanding that you cannot build a stable system that is pointed out against one of its major pillars. On that note, and, and this is maybe the question I've gotten the most often here when I've been doing interviews, and I think I know what your answer is going to be, but I'll ask it just to be sure. 
Is there any level of sanctions or any economic measure that Europe or the United States could take that would stop Russia from doing what it's doing in Ukraine? I think the answer is no. But is, is there anything on the sanctions level that, that could stop Moscow from pursuing its objectives right now? The answer is no. I think you're correct. Yeah. The issue is so important politically, security-wise. It's vital interest for Russia. And uh, Russia cannot permit itself to lose. It cannot pre- permit itself to be, uh, you know, um, deterred from doing what it w- w- what it's doing. And uh, actually, the physical proximity to Ukraine, in terms of transport, logistics, military bases, supply chains, prevents Russia from from losing. It's uh, imagine that the United States is having a war with with Mexico. Can the United States lose this war with Mexico? I think it's really problematic. Yeah. All right. We only have a few more minutes and I know you're busy and got to run. So before before I let you out of here, um, let's talk about Russia and China a little bit, because I think this is one of the places you and I have disagreed for the longest. Um, and you've, you've talked about how China is an alternative for Russia. And there's been all this stuff between Putin and Xi about what a great relationship it is. Um, but I, I sort of see it the opposite way. And I even was talking to some folks recently imposed a thought experiment, which was, you know, let's say, what if the U.S. collapsed in on itself? What if the U.S. was having a civil war or something, was no longer a global power, something terrible happened? Would China be acting towards Russia the same way in the context of this Ukraine war? And that thought experiment slows down, I think, the Chinese perspective, because I think a lot of the reason China is so close to Russia right now is because the United States has decided to say, hey, China and Russia, you're both evil and we hate you and Putin's the butcher and she's the thug and we're just going to treat you both as these horrible countries that are existential peer threats to the United States. But it seems to me that's not the basis for a long-term relationship between China and Russia and that geographically, China and Russia have very divergent um, geopolitical interests. So Tell me, tell me why you think I'm wrong for the listeners, because I think it's helpful to, for them to understand why Russia is looking towards China as a potential option, even if I don't see it. I don't think that you're wrong, but uh, we need to put everything in the historical context. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it's very, you know, rare occasion when uh, two of the major crises simultaneously, uh, you know, jo- joins in, in, in one in one historical point. Currently, for the last 30 years, for the last actually like 70 or 80 years, Russia and United States have been in type of relations that makes them to one another the major enemy, the major adversary. And China, on occasion, on a very rare occasion, emerges as a player in this great game, I would put it. And uh, it is still the, the, the logic of this situation where Russia is, its attention, its gravity center, its major economic interests ally in the European direction. So Russia is looking to the West, while China looking to the East, to the Pacific Ocean. Uh, we, we have been speaking about this in our last podcast. Um, I, I don't think that neither R- Russian leadership in Moscow or Chinese leadership in Beijing love each other to the extent that uh, you know they are forming a brotherly relations and that would uh, forge a uh, union for next several generations or centuries they are not that silly people and as we know you know the family type of relation doesn't um, prove durable enough to prevent a war between countries like russia and ukraine shows mm. but they are uh, russian and uh, chinese leadership they are very pragmatical and practical leaders and they understand what they are vital interests are. And right now, 
April 8, uh, 2022. Those interests are pointed against the United States, not against each other. We can speak other circumstances when they would emerge. And you said, if United States collapse, well, it never happened yet. <laughs> and, and if it would happen, then we will, you know, decide, uh, make our analytical exercise again, and, and we'll probably look at each other in a different perspective. But currently, you know, the, the headache for both Moscow and Beijing is Washington, not, not each other. And uh, that makes this uh, partnership very stable, even though we have a lot of differences. Are there any other countries that you feel are part of that partnership? Is, do you feel like India is part of that? Do you feel like Iran is part of that? Or, or is it really just Russia and China or sort of at the, at the hip there and it doesn't extend beyond that? Well, I think for a lot of countries who strive for independence in global affairs, who try to propose their own sovereign path, uh, not not aligning with the United States, including India, Turkey, Iran, Brazil, uh, Indonesia, you know some other countries who are not members of the of the military alliances uh, headed by the United States. For them, this Ukrainian crisis is really both a challenge and an opportunity. A challenge because it affects all of them, uh, market wise and price wise and uh, inflation wise. Uh, an opportunity because they consider this crisis to be a formative in terms of the po forming a polycentric global order. And all of them try to benefit from it, like uh, Arab countries uh, switching to different currencies in, in trade, trading oil, um, India trying to maintain its uh, connections uh, with Russia in terms of the uh, buying military equipment. Um, Turkey is playing pretty wisely both hands in this crisis, supporting Ukraine, but also trying to fill the gap that is left by Western companies on Russian market, uh, staying neutral, not sanctioning Russia, being transport hub for uh, all things uh, trade connected. It's really a, you know interesting strategy. I would like to see this type of strategy, say, from Germany, and that would be a real strategic autonomy, but we don't see it where we see strategic autonomy is from Turkey, actually, a NATO country that behaves very differently from the mainstream. So I think for, for those countries, it is really an interesting historic times which they would try to benefit from. I would say careful what you wish for. Turkey also has probably the second most powerful military <laughs> in NATO right now. So if Germany has a strong military again, maybe they'll start acting a little bit differently. Andre, I know you got to go. Thank you so much for making the time. I have no idea when I'm going to get a chance to see you again next in person, but it's nice to know we can continue to talk here. And I hope you'll come back on soon and continue to share your perspectives with us. Thank you so much. Jacob, thank you very much. It was a great conversation. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. 
Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice a week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.